Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week on the Mike Wise Show, we've got a Hall of Famer. He's also a double repeat offender. The last time he appeared on the show was in late October as the NBA season was about to start. And he is back to help us make sense of everything, both on and off the court. We'll get to him shortly, but first, Darlene, as usual, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests Right, Mike? I just have something to say about the bubble opening and the NBA coming back to work. You know, I'm really happy Adam Silver, the commissioner, is getting kudos over his ability to keep his players safe. He and everyone who has worked hard not to test positive for COVID in Orlando deserve it. But I am having trouble with this gleeful rejoicing over the bubble. Because when it comes down to it, that's what it is, a bubble doesn't reflect the real world. It doesn't reflect what's happening in society, or for that matter, mere miles from the area Disney has partnered with the NBA to cordon off from Orlando and Central Florida. See, Florida had its worst day for infections this week. 50 of the 186 people who died Monday because they could no longer breathe were from Central Florida, many not far from the five-star sterilization of the NBA family, of which I'm proud to be a part of even peripherally now. And while it's great to laud the league for its proactive measures and prescient planning for getting part of America back to work safely, it's also fair to ask if playing in a hotspot state experiencing so much grief and death and poor health right now is a little tin-eared. I'm not sure the bubble should be the standard for which each league strives. It's a hermetically sealed, cordoned off chunk of property whose residents, from players and coaches to my beloved sports media brethren, participate daily in cognitive dissonance. We're told on television the players will be fighting for social justice while also fighting for a championship. Well, that's debatable. They're wearing socially socially woke jerseys and t-shirts and playing basketball, which is fine. You know, many have already demonstrated and protested before the bubble. And anybody who argues that the NBA isn't the most Uh, socially conscious league and progressive and fighting for Black Lives Matter and every racial reckoning we have out there, uh, they'd be be laughed off the face of the earth because the NBA is great at that. But let's not make this more out to be than it actually is. It's owners and players recovering lost millions by honoring network TV partnerships worth billions. It's about getting closure to a fantastic regular season halted by a global pandemic. And it's about feigning normalcy amid the madness. This isn't a slam on the league or anyone participating in the success of protecting the NBA bubble from corona-induced catastrophe. It's merely pointing out that in order to preach how great a distraction LeBron and Giannis will be, you also have to participate in a little bit of denial. You have to put aside the reality of thousands of Americans, including the four dozen who died on Monday in Central Florida, 
cannot breathe because they don't have a bubble to save them from their lungs failing them. You have to trick yourself into believing that basketball matters intensely right now, and it doesn't. You have to tell yourself as a player, coach, trainer, league, team employee, even a sports journalist, that what you're doing inside that bubble is more worthwhile than what you could be doing outside the bubble. And maybe it is. Still, there has to be some dissociation. Because while in NBA world, where 0 for 344 in coronavirus tests is cause for virtual fist bumping and contactless celebration, in outside the bubble world, most of America doesn't care whether Zion Williamson now had to undergo four days of quarantine for his 11-day bubble absence. See, many years ago, I took a test while applying for a job as a high school sports writer. I had to put together a group of facts about a basketball game that included spectacular performances, a packed house, and, oh, a fire consuming the gym before the game ended, forcing evacuation. I put the high scores in the second paragraph and then awkwardly segued into, in the third quarter, a fire that began outside forced both teams and fans to evacuate the gym. I didn't deserve to get that job because I neither understood the context nor importance of the news. Today, there's a fire raging outside our locker rooms and our fields of play. COVID-19 ignited it. It's undefeated and has no network TV contract. It only wants to attack as many of our immune systems as it can. And most Americans outside the NBA bubble don't have good protocol. So if we're really going to heap massive praise on a lockdown sports league about to restart, amid record-breaking cases and fatalities in many states across this country, we also have to acknowledge that the good happening in that bubble is not real life. It's sports. And with that, let's move on to my guest this week. That was dope. It was indeed, Darlene. And it was woke, too. Basketball is back, kids. And so is today's special guest. For his third appearance on The Mike Wise Show, he's our first three-timer, my personal rabbi, spiritual guide, all-around positive life force, and he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame as the 2017 winner of the Kurt Gowdy Media Award. He's the great Harvey Ayrton. Welcome back, my brother. Good to talk to you, Mike. And for the third appearance, do I get the board game to go home? <laughs> I, you know, I can't give you much more than, I, uh, than a Shaq Talks Back in paperback uh, version. You have another book coming out in October. Please tell people what it's about. Well, it's, it's called Our Last Season, uh, a writer, a fan of friendship. And it really tells a story of, um, of a long 40-year friendship I had with a woman who sat literally behind the Knicks bench for, for those 40, actually 45 years, um, who I became acquainted with in my earliest years covering the Knicks for the New York Post. She became my uh, eyes and ears behind the bench, uh, a good source, and gradually also became a close friend and then almost like a life mentor. Um, wonderful woman, has an incredible backstory. Um, and uh, the book uses the last year of her life uh, when she can no longer go to the games. And I would spend a lot of time, a lot of the, that year, spending time watching games with her at her home in Stanford, Connecticut, which gave us a chance to reminisce about our long friendship. And um, so the book uses that last season, which hence our last season, which also, by the way, kind of coincided with the last year that I spent much time around the garden. I still do an occasional piece for the Times, but 
you know, that life seems to be behind me now. And um, so, you know, in many ways, it's kind of like a, a Tuesdays with Maury meets driving Mr. Yogi. I mean, that's what I've been calling <laughs> it. Uh, and it's just a, one of these career cherry on tops that I'm proud of and um, very personal book, a, bit, a little mm-hmm. bit of a part memoir, I would call it. But for the most part, it's the story of a unique and special friendship. Well, I, I I liked right away when I started reading what it was about because I had met Michelle. I remember her um, distinctly. I remember you guys talking a lot, and um, and I also liked that I think you know Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Albom's bestseller was its own book. Obviously, Driving Mr. Yogi was your bestseller. It had its what I've always thought is one of the sort of things in our business that people don't even talk about is. The relationship the writers and the broadcasters have with fans, people that you befriend, whether sometimes they got in touch with you because they hated something you wrote or sometimes they got in touch with you, something you they really like. But either way, that relationship uh, blossomed over the years. I have a few people in Washington now that I really I, I can call them up about things and and um, and nobody ever writes or talks about those. But it's a it's a different kind of relationship that um, I uh, you know, I, I can't wait to read, and um, and I'm sure you did it justice. How are you otherwise? I mean, the whole, the last time we spoke, the world wasn't in chaos as it is now, and um, and certainly the COVID uh, virus has not uh, had not even appeared, or if it had, it was sort of talked about as a as something in China that was never going to have a real effect here. How's your family? How's how's everybody? Um, please tell me what's going on. Well, everybody's knockwood so far has been good. I mean, uh, we've all, my two sons, one is 30, the other one's 26. Uh, Alex and Charlie have been working remotely. One is a special ed teacher and the other one is, a, is in event marketing um, for a Japanese streetwear company. Um, and um, they were, we actually had them here uh, at, with us for, I want to say, a couple of months through the, you know, through the worst of it in this, in this neck of the woods. They've gone back to their apartments in Jersey City and, and Manhattan. Um, but, um, and uh, my wife, Beth, has been, she also works for a school administrator, so she's been working. Mm. Uh, and I've been doing my thing. I've been writing uh some advanced obits for the times uh, on aging basketball players not the most upbeat work in the midst of a pandemic that has been deadly obviously but uh safe to do at home you know i enjoy the research uh historical archival documents that i think are important um tying up loose ends on the book uh but basically you know you know kind of uh, hanging in the neighborhood. You know, we have a dog, so we do a lot of dog walks, and I ride my bike in the mornings, early in the morning before it gets too hot, and uh, we do do some social distance visits with friends on their back decks, or, uh, you know, you, you're familiar with, obviously, Philip Bondi, and mm-hmm. uh, lives in our town from the Daily News, or formerly of the son, Daily News. Whose son, Stefan, has turned into the uh, his own sort of New York media star covering the Knicks. That's right. No, Stefan does quite well. Um, he kind of inherited the Frank Isola villain role at Madison Square Garden <laughs> uh, as the resident Daily News beat reporter. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, but, you know, like everybody else, you know, sometimes, you know, you kind of focus day to day on the things you have to do and the things you're looking forward to. And other times, you know, the bigger picture brings a certain kind of sense of despair, not just for, you know, when when the heck is life going to return to normal, but despairing for young people like my sons and people's children dealing with school closings, all that stuff. Um, and you just try to do your best to uh, try to focus on the positive. And, you know, in that respect, although I have some misgivings about the return of sports, the testing that's being done when people are waiting days and weeks for their results. On the other hand, I have to say, you know, uh, it was kind of fun to watch the Clippers and the Lakers last night. Um, You know, it's, it's sort of the contradictory nature of this entire thing that, you know, we understand that priorities are, you know, skewed in many respects, but at the same time, at eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night, you know, instead of watching a rerun or, um, you know, consulting Netflix to see what it's nice to see a live sporting event. Um, but you know, uh, it, it, it's, it gives us great, call, uh, just, just, it really creates a sense of, of, uh, of uncertainty and, um, in some respects, um, you know, revulsion. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'd like to get into the bubble talk a little bit because tonight everybody's talking about it. it's Dame Dalla versus John Morant, which sounds more like a rap battle than an actual matchup on the court. But nonetheless, the NBA is back. I, I kind of, I'm on record already, as people know, as being skeptical as to whether the NBA would be able to complete the season down at Disney's Wide World of Sports bubble in Florida, and Obviously, Adam Silver's getting all kinds of praise out of the box. I'm with you, though. I, I liken it to my love affair with boxing a little bit. It's it's hypocritical. Um, on one hand, there's nothing better than watching two guys go at it and one guy almost out of it. And the resilience is is such a metaphor for people in life, down and out, and to come back. And yet, the result is in a real ugly fight. Uh, there's there's brain damage suffered, <laughs> or there's when there's there's nothing better than watching a guy come back, and yet there's nothing worse in sports than seeing a fight not stopped soon enough. And I feel like this is the trade-off that I'm doing myself with the NBA. I just feel like you have to have some cognitive dissonance to step back and go, you know, I'm going to do my job in the bubble here. I'm going to announce it, or I'm going to play a game, or I'm going to coach it. And meanwhile, outside that area in Orlando, there are people dying, and Florida is the hottest spot in the country. And for three days in a row, they had record-setting fatalities on each day. I, you know, I, it just, I don't know. It, it, even though the NBA has been good about giving some of its testing to other, uh, other hospitals and healthcare uh, providers around the country, including Orlando, I still, it just, there's something about it that uh, it just feels queasy in the stomach a little bit. Well, so far, from what I've seen, Mike, I think actually the players and uh, the coaches who have been interviewed, I think they actually have struck the right tone. Uh, I find myself getting more pissed off about the media. And I think, you know, it goes back to, you know, this this um, pattern what we fall into of hyperbole. So, like, we throw around, you know, and I've done it, you know, we've all done it, 
you know, words like heroic and courageous. And, mm. you know, I, that's why I thought your Twitter thread the other day was, was spot on, that we need to be really careful about how we portray what the, the NBA is achieving here or pulling off. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not some, you know, uh, uh, heroic, uh, you know, delivery of essential services. Um, the heroes were people who were going to work from the health frontline healthcare workers to people delivering your groceries. Mm. And, you know, we've too often fall into that. I mean, whether it's, you know, something of this nature, um, which is, you know, communal, or even in the way we report certain stories. I remember years ago when Kobe Bryant was going through the trial in Colorado, and I remember during the finals that year, you know, he was flying back and forth to Colorado for these court appearances. And I remember Jim Gray, who a guy you know, I always liked, was on air one day, and he was talking about, you know, Kobe's, you know, reaching uh, deep down honesty. within himself <laughs> to to get it up, you know, to get it yeah. up on game time for the finals. And I was like, let's not make a hero out of a guy who's accused of raping someone and is being put off, he's, he's, you know, having to go to court and then fly back and play in a damn basketball game. Um, you know, it's funny. I remember writing years ago, the Daily News was on strike, and we put out a strike newspaper that was the union we called it the real news. And I remember writing a column and I think it was during, I actually, I know it was during the first invasion of Iraq by George HW Bush. And I remember all the sportscasters saying, you know, they would, you know, back in the day when like the six o'clock news was actually watched it's by millions of deal. people. And, and they would go at 622 to the sports, you know, the two, three minutes of sports and whoever was coming out would say, well, I know it's trite to report about sports during a time when our soldiers are in Iraq. And I remember writing a column saying, you know what, you can say that every day about sports. There's always some calamity going on in the world. Let's not apologize for being interested in how the Yankees did or whatever. On that, you know, thinking about that column that I wrote back then, this is very different, you know, because this is a worldwide pandemic the U.S. is in the is the worst of all in terms of its willing its ability to deal with it, and the numbers are staggering. And also, there's a there is a, there is a relationship here with how sports is operating within our communities, and the number of tests that are being conducted on athletes when the average person, you know, either doesn't have access to a test or is waiting online for six hours or then getting a test result two weeks later that is really irrelevant. Um, so I do think we have to be even more careful than usual in the way we portray these games and what their value is, you know, beyond a couple of hours of entertainment at night. That, you know, we would, we would survive without them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm the same way. That we want sports, but we don't need them right now. The uh, NBA has taken a, a monster hit in the last couple of days. Did you see the Fainer brothers' piece about uh, Chinese exploitation of their the NBA's youth camps and some of the Chinese officials abusing the kids physically? I there, I you know, I, I, I. 
I don't, you know, I, I like Adam Silver. I know him and it's almost hard for me to, but I feel that, that there's just, gosh, so much there after that Daryl Morey tweet and the NBA's really, God, not controversial is the word, just, just awkward tightrope and, and the relationship with the uh, China is just not only has it cost them hundreds of millions of dollars now, but now they've now they've now they've really got to score to square this sort of social mess social message um, domestically that they're putting out, which I think is for all intents and purposes great. Versus, boy, internationally, you guys you guys got some real problems. Um, and do, do you just do you just walk by that story if you're the league, or do you confront it and say? We have to change our ways. I think anything that they put their name on is an NBA training academy. They have to at least pay attention to it and try to mitigate, you know, the situation as best they can. You know, it's it's really um, this is a difficult time for the NBA to be um, straining its relationships with places that provide revenue and as much as China, which is one of its, you know, its best customers abroad or uh, uh, partners, because, you know, they're losing so much money at home now. I mean, who foresaw this, the bottom dropping out of this uh, sports industry, which always seemed like, you know, a never ending escalation of revenues. Um, But, you know, it's on the one hand, sometimes, you know, when, when, these right-wing opportunists kind of jump all over the NBA for its policies or it's, you know, for the unwillingness of LeBron or some of the players to speak out against the policies in China. Um, They're just, that's just opportunism, double standards. Uh, You know, the congressman who, who Woj had the issue with, you know, could have been directing the same question at, at his own president, you know, who hasn't really, despite all the rhetoric, uh, taken on uh, the Chinese government in any meaningful way for what's going on in, what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you do have a, a um, responsibility um, and a moral responsibility to, you know, to understand, you know, who your business partners are and what they're doing. Um, it's a very fine line to walk. Uh, I remember when I wrote um, an essay about the life of David Stern back in that ran, I guess, you know, the day after New Year's when he passed away. And I kind of made that point that, you know, David over the years, especially from younger generation, took a lot of hits about things like the dress code and, you know, essentially um, trying to appease uh people who, you know, didn't like the sight of tattoos or, or dreads or whatever it was, um, and had to walk that fine line between what he felt, what his essentially progressive values, but what he felt was in the best consumer interest of his league, the owners, of course, who were his first priority and the players as well. Um, and I made the point that, you know, at the end of the piece that um, maybe LeBron and some of the players who, you know, and young people in general who might have been critical of David and not been as familiar with 
you know, the league that he took over in the in 1984, and and of course was affiliated in the years prior to that. Um, they in the China situation, a lot of the stars suddenly had to walk in David's shoes, you know, because they had to say they had to suddenly ask themselves the question: um, Do I speak out and further alienate the Chinese government, and you know, and put at risk those hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that comes from China? Um, it's not an easy question to answer, uh, you know, and a lot of, and, and the NBA is far from the only American corporation with the airlines that fly there, you know, all the, all the fast food companies that do business in all over China and a lucrative business, you know, have all probably been less forthcoming or aggressive in taking on the Chinese government than the NBA, at least, the NBA made some tactical mistakes early on, um, but ultimately got around to, you know, this is what we believe, and we're going to allow people to speak their minds. Um, yeah, that, you know, that was it. Was, that came after a very awkward uh, time when they were. They saw there's. It was like, hey, watching a cash machine lose money, and they and they realized at some point they couldn't stop it, and they just had, they 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 were all of a sudden they were going. We're going to domestically our product at home is going to be crap if we don't stand up for. American values here. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that was, that was a test of Adam silver stewardship, just as this is a test. Uh, I don't get past it. And I think it, at some point you go into business with people and you, you, this, these, these are the kind of risks you take when you go into business with people that don't have the same values and don't run their society the same way. I think um, what they had, I think what the NBA ultimately, I think what Adam, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how to respond. I mean, again, you know, the releasing one statement in English and one in Mandarin was really kind of awful. Uh, and they, so they got off to a terrible start. And I think they were scared, obviously. But I think the one thing that, and I would say this about all American businesses, um, commercial, Starbucks, whatever, is that, you know, they have to have this sense in places like China that, yeah, you need their business. They're, you know, a country of a billion plus people uh, and an emerging, you know, form of capitalism. But they also need you. They need, you know, they repress their people in many ways. But one of the things that the Chinese government has given its people over the last couple of decades are the sort of the, you know, the things that are valued in the commercial things that are valued in the West, you know, it's sad to say that one of those things is Kentucky fried chicken or, you know, or, or a $5 cup of coffee. Um, but certainly one of those things has been the NBA, which is wildly popular in China. And, you know, for those of us who were in there for the Beijing Olympics in 2008 um, and, you know, that's something that and basketball is a hugely popular sport in China. I believe it's the most popular sport in China, and so the NBA had to kind of, I think, came around to the idea that you know we got to stand our ground a little bit here, and come to the conclusion that they want us there. If it's only to kind of appease their, you know, their people, that hey, you may not be able to express yourself politically, but you can watch LeBron three nights a week on on our networks. So. 
they're you know they're not going to be as as quick to just jettison their relationship with the NBA as people here might think. And I think that was the better approach to take that you have to feel like you have some leverage in this. Mm. Uh, our, my guest is Harvey Ariton for the third time. His book, Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship, is coming out in October. I, I get, we haven't really talked basketball that much. Are you interested? Are you into it? I, I'm, I'm, you know, I watched the game last night, uh, especially LeBron James and Anthony Davis at the end, and, and LeBron putting on a defensive show, hitting a shot with 12 seconds. And I, the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing felt like, uh, things hadn't gone away. It was it was exciting. It was great. I don't know if the ratings stay up. I don't know if you know. I, I don't know if the NBA, the, the crowd, the the uh, manufactured <laughs> uh, hype around it is going to work or not. But I I, I like watching live sports. <laughs> and and if I could and if I could have my druthers about which live sport I could watch, basketball is it. Well, you know when when soccer in Europe. Uh, started up again a couple of months ago. Uh, my wife, Beth, is a huge Liverpool fan in, in English Premier League. And so, you know, by watching games with her... Wait, wait, know, wait. Let's go back a second. Beth Albert is a Liverpool fan? How did that happen? She, Beth, you know, years ago, uh, I want to say 20 years ago, was playing soccer. It was sort of like... Uh, in fact, I wrote a book about it called Alive and Kicking. It was about a bunch of Montclair... Soccer, I remember that now. soccer moms who became soccer playing moms. And I, you know, I wrote a book about the first year of competition, women who had never really uh, played sports because their high schools really didn't back then didn't offer much before the women's sports boom. And um, so she developed an interest in soccer, mainly through playing, but also the, the U.S. women's national team. That was right around the time of the 99 uh, World Cup. Um, so she, over the, over the years, she kind of got interested in, you know, the premier league in the world. You know, you could argue that La Liga is great or Bundesliga, but, but she, you know, we, she feels that she loves premier league and she became a Liverpool fan. And I, I, I've promised her, sworn to her that we will attend a live game at Anfield where we took a tour several years ago, but it was in the summer. So the, the league was dark. Um, anyway, um, I like the announcers. I like, I just like the way that, you know, he's a cracking footballer. He's a cracking footballer. Yeah, everything is like kind of sparse. Uh, I remember. The equalizer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we started watching the games, when they, when they, you know, Liverpool needed like six points to clinch the title its first in 30 years. So I was into that. I will say Mike that, um, yeah, I could get, definitely get into it. I like soccer as well. Um, and But I have to also say that watching sports when they pan empty stadiums, you know, the seats are, are either, you know, covered or whatever it is, was sort of a constant, not throughout the game, you know, the times you lose yourself to the, to the action, but there were times when I would feel this sense of despair because it reminds you where we are as a, as a culture. I mean, where we are in, in the world. And with that in mind, I think the NBA, and I feel, I really feel that way watching a baseball game, although I've kind of lost my interest in baseball for the most part. Um, 
you really feel it seeing cardboard cutouts <laughs> behind the plate and these empty, all these empty seats. Oh, God. But the NBA might have actually the best-looking arrangement because, you know, the court is the focus. You see the benches, the high-risers uh, on the sideline. Now, last night was the first time we saw the Zoom fans watching, you know, it's hard, you don't see them all the time. But what the NBA game looks like uh, upon first glance last night is sort of like a high-tech futuristic studio effect. And that might be, that might be the look, the sleekest look that, you know, goes the, goes the longest way in making you kind of forget for the two hours that you watch a game yeah. that we're in the middle of a pandemic because you're not constantly looking at 50,000 empty seats. And in that sense, I felt a little bit, I felt a little bit more able to hook into the escapism watching last night. And uh, I'll, it'll be interesting to see as we go forward. Do I care about it? You know, when, when, as the build up, you know, when the teams reported and, you know, somebody Woj would drop a bomb saying, you know, the Nets assigned Jamal Crawford. I found myself rolling my eyes saying, who gives a damn? Um, you know, the world is on fire. Um, and yet, as you said, when they threw the ball up, you know, and you see Anthony Davis on my first, you know, I'm reminded, what, well, what a load he is. Um, it's easier to go back to, you know, March 10th or 11th or whatever day it was that they shut down the season and just watch a game um, and see it as two hours of trying to forget the mess that we're in. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I don't, it's so different. Everything's so different. It's just, it's not the Yankees after 9-11. It's not baseball after 9-11. It's just a, it's, it's just a different world on so many levels. Um, I, I still, now that the games are back, I still want to see the Lakers play the Bucs in the finals. Uh, I just think it'd be fun to see the small market against the big market. It won't have the pizzazz because they won't be going to each city. They'll just be on that one court. But um, I, I, I like that. I, I like the idea. And I like, I wouldn't mind to see LeBron get one or two more before he retires because I think his window's about three years at this point. And um, and this the pandemic has pretty much almost robbed him of one. So um, that'd be fun. I, that'd be fun. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm rooting for somebody like Jamal Crawford because I like him as a guy and I hope he does well. Um, I don't know if I have any rooting interest besides that. Do you? Not really. Um, you know, I, I uh, my son Charlie has been a long he's been a Clippers fan for many years. God knows how that happened. This was before you know CP3 and and Blake Griffin uh, put them back on the map. I mean, he I remember him you know rooting for them when they had Sam Cassell and Elton Brand and um, but so you know I mean you know I enjoy I I, I kind of like the Clippers and I love Kawhi Leonard. Uh, as you know, I was always a huge Spurs guy uh, during the Duncan years, and Leonard, of course, uh, those two great finals back-to-back mm. against Miami. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing the Clippers do well as well. 
Um, but you know, it, I, I'm also I, I also keep thinking to myself, I'll enjoy you know this run in the bubble um, <laughs> because you know if you start to look beyond and you say, okay, let's say this season ends in mid October, and then they have the draft and yeah. uh, you know a truncated free agency and all that stuff, and then they they're hoping to start up again around Christmas time for next season. But how is that going to work? I mean, unless you believe that there's going to be some miracle vaccine that, you know, makes this all go away or at least gets it, you know, much more under control, what are they going to do next season? Are they going to bring everybody back into like an eight-month bubble? That's not going to work. Or a six-month bubble? Three months, you know. Yeah, they're making it work because they need the revenue, the TV deal. Um, Everybody wants to create some sense of normalcy. But you can't have bubble life become the norm for two Mm -hmm. years even and it's unlikely based on what we've seen with baseball so far that you can go back to having you know the celtics come down to play in the garden uh or the knicks get on a plane and go play in detroit given the way things are so you know if you want if if things could become really interesting you know after this bubble thing is over, interesting, you know, slash devastating for the sports industry at large. If, you know, I doubt this, you know, God knows what the NFL season will look like if there is one. College football, uh, in the last five years or so, I've become a big college football fan, a sport I never paid any attention to my entire life. But when my son Alex went to Penn State, he was there through the Sandusky nightmare. We kind of bonded watching the revival of the program with Saquon Barkley uh, a few years ago, and they won the Big Ten title. So I'm like this, like, passionate Penn State fan now. And, you know, I also think that it's insane that they would even, you know, consider the idea of playing a season. Oh, if you – college football and college basketball, I don't know how you could play and put kids – it's one thing not to pay your workforce. It's another thing to put them at at risk health-wise. Uh, it's like, it, it, be, it would go beyond, um, it would go beyond every argument we've ever made. It would be, that would be strictly for putting money in the athletic coffers of, of the respective, you know, big five power conferences. It would be a joke. I can't, but, I can't, for, I can't even imagine. Well, they haven't, you know, it's really about the habits of young people. You know, a lot of the surges in the South and Southwest and, now we're starting to see a little more in New Jersey, too, with beach parties and house parties and stuff. A lot of the surges in, in infections have been the habits of young people who, you know, tend to feel, you know, less vulnerable or, um, you know, uh, have a more difficult time sheltering in place, whatever it is. So baseball um, managed to keep things the lid on things while they're in their, you know, extended, whatever they called it, summer training for a couple of weeks before they started playing. But as soon as they went out on the road, you've seen the number of cases rise dramatically, right? Football, because it's mainly college, it's, it's all college kids. I mean, college football, it's all college kids. They haven't been able to keep the lid on it for, you know, summer workouts. You see teams all over the country, 
with multiple players testing positive and having to shut down their workouts, how the heck are they going to, you know, if, with with football players mingling with the normal student population and then going on the road, um, you know, it, it sounds completely unworkable. And again, you're right. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, uh, I'm a 28-year-old man and I decided that I need the $3 million or the $6 million or the $20 million, so I'm playing this season. It's another thing that it's a kid who's 19 years old and wants to make an impression on NFL scouts. I mean, to put that kid out there um, when, yeah, is, are the mortality rates incredibly much, much lower, far lower than they are for 60-year-olds? Of course. But we're also hearing a lot about, you know, uh, conditions that anyone who catches the virus can have, whether it's the lungs or the heart, um, long after, um, you know, they recover. And, you know, in college sports, it's even unclear if you have uh, a condition that carries on for years, whether, you know, the insurance policy that they're playing under will cover that. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, I think they, you know, they're hedging with a conference schedule, but we'll see. I doubt it. Yeah, agreed. All right, before I let you go, who is going to raise the Larry O'Brien trophy in the fall? <laughs> Doesn't that sound weird? Larry O'Brien trophy. Um, you know, I'm going to make a sentimental pick. Um, well, no, it's not even a sentimental pick. I'm going to make a pick, uh, and um, I'm going to go with uh, um, I'm going to go with the Clippers actually, uh, mm. because I think you know I watched the game last night and uh, they nearly pulled it out, and they were missing two key guys, Lou Williams and and Montres Harrell. No, Lou, Williams, uh, Lou Williams had to quarantine because he liked those wings so much. He liked the, chicken uh, wings, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that they, they, you know, with adding one of the Morris brothers um, and Reggie Jackson, who I'm not a great fan of, but, you know, he's another player who, you know, deepens their, their bench. Uh, Patrick Beverly didn't start last night, but um, I, I really like their team. Um and, um, uh, you know, I've always been a big fan of Doc Rivers. That would be my sentimental attachment as well as Kawhi. Uh, but I, I'm going to go with the Clippers. Um, you know, I, I think the Lakers, LeBron is unbelievable. And Anthony Davis, as I say, is is a handful uh, every night. But I'm not crazy about the rest of their roster. Avery Bradley not playing. Um, Rondo being out uh, for a couple of months. Um, you know, I see J.R. Smith come off the bench and I can't help but get that, that play in, in what was it, game one of the, the last finals LeBron played in Cleveland yeah. where he didn't know the score. Uh, I can't get that out of my mind. Um, so, you know, I'm going to say they'll fall short. And I also think it'll be interesting to see who they draw in the first round. I mean, if it's a team like Portland – which suddenly has its two bigs back. Um, trouble. 
that could be trouble. Those two guards and Nurkic and, you know, that, you know, a slim down Carmelo, you know, still won't play any defense, but, you know, score some points. Um, that, that will, that will be interesting to see. And as I say, their roster is fairly thin. You know, do you, do you think you can win a title? You know, all things being competitively equal, you know, yeah, I think they'll, you know, they beat up on Sacramento or whatever, but all things being somewhat competitively equal, do you think you're winning a title with JaVale McGee and J.R. Smith and, you know, that kind of group around LeBron and AD? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm with you on all that. I'm with you on all that. And if, if Reggie Jackson hits a big shot in the finals, I think he's Mr. October. That's very true. <laughs> you well, need to hit a that copyright. I don't. I have no idea. If he hits a trio of threes in the clinching game, oh. right, like Reggie did in Game Six against the Dodgers in yes. whatever year, seventy-eight, Then we'll know we're in the twilight zone. Full stop. Okay, people. Time to wrap this up. Thanks to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Ben Wolfen. Please check out all our Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court Press with Fanton and Adams comes your way every Tuesday. This past week, Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong featured Derek Bodner, the 76ers beat writer for The Athletic, with great takes on Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and company. Bruce actually filled in for Otto this week, but swears this isn't a Wally Pip, Lou Gehrig situation. Monica McNutt and King McClure are here each Thursday with buckets, boards, and blocks. And BJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops every Friday. I'm back next Monday with a brand new edition of the Mike Wise Show from Pure Hoops Media. Listen up, you dudes and dudettes. We are not out of the woods with the COVID-19 pandemic, so please keep our medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They're putting it all on the line for us. And please help them and your fellow citizens by continuing to maintain social distancing, washing your hands, and wearing that mask to protect yourself and others. I know I sound like Dr. Fauci, but it's because I want to be him, other than throwing out a first pitch. And please keep working for social justice with fellow members of the human race who are striving for a more inclusive society. If you like the Mike Wise Show, please subscribe. It's free. Listen and leave a five-star rating. It would mean a lot to both of us, me and my producer and I guess my wife, the only one listening. Until we meet again, peeps, peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.